If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, why not become a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh? Our membership provides you with access to the RCPE educational portal, the live evening medical updates, and you have options to view the symposia both in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, please go to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website. Hello and welcome to our next episode of Clinical Conversations. My name is Anza Balarga. I'm currently a Clinical Research Fellow in Cardiology at the University of Edinburgh and I'm part of Trainees and Members Committee at the Royal College of Physicians, Edinburgh. Johnny, would you like to introduce yourself as well? Hello everyone, welcome to Clinical Conversations. I'm Johnny Bargett and I'm a TMC member. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Andrew Elder, the President of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. Welcome Professor Elder. Oh, thank you very much. So today we have an exciting episode. We're going to talk about clinical skills in postgraduate medicine. And as Johnny said, we're delighted that Professor Elder is able to join us as he's probably one of the best able to talk about this with his wide experience in postgraduate education and postgraduate exams. Just before we start the conversation, I'd like to give a bit of an introduction to Professor Elder. So Professor Elder is a consultant physician currently in NHS 5 an honorary professor at the University of Edinburgh and the president of the Royal College of Physicians, Edinburgh. So as an NHS consultant in medicine for the older people for 30 years to date, he's first and foremost a clinician. He sees the doctor's role in patient care as a privilege, believes that the teaching of medicine is a vital part of professional life and the traditional attributes of a physician, such as compassion, communication, clinical competence, remain paramount. The focus of his work outside clinical care has been medical education and the college's examination remained their most explicit standards and he has made significant contribution and impact training and assessment in recent years through his leadership roles. He also has a huge international experience in visiting more than 20 countries to teach or assess bedside clinical skills in the past 20 years and establishing successful educational partnership in the Middle and Far East, Indian subcontinent, Africa, mainland Europe and North America. In 2021, in recognition of his work on clinical skills in the USA, where he's a visiting professor at Stanford and John Hopkins, he became the first doctor practicing in Scotland and only the second in the UK ever to be awarded a mastership of the American College of Physicians. Welcome again, Professor Elder, and we're really looking forward to our discussion today. So we thought we'll start by asking you to give us further overview of your career, but also where your passion for medical education started. Thanks very much, Anda and Johnny and the whole team for the invitation and for the very flattering introduction. I'm a great fan of the Clinical Conversations podcast series, so I should record you know, my admiration for it, my thanks for doing it too here as well. So I'm sure everybody who's listening, whatever stage in your career you're at, you look back on where you are and how you got to it. And you know, I'm pretty far on in my career, so there's a lot of looking back to do. But thinking about your question about medical education, I guess my first way into that would be just to remind myself that the word doctor comes from docere, which means to teach. And I've always seen my first responsibility is to my patients as a clinician. But second to that is those who will follow me and be doing the job I do. So teaching is absolutely central to my role as a hospital doctor. I couldn't imagine doing or enjoying the job as much without teaching. 
I think another angle on that really is that when you think, when I think sometimes about the things that pull you through, you know, medicine can be pretty tough sometimes and feel relentless and that you're very busy. But when I think about that, it's the conversations that I have with medical students or trainees on ward rounds and clinics, the things I feel able to teach them about, the questions they ask me, particularly the ones that I can't answer. I've got this kind of not quite a mantra, but at least once on every ward round, a consultant should say the words, I don't know, to illustrate the fact that we're all always learning. So I love the whole interaction as a now a trainer with trainees and students. I don't know. Some people have asked me if, you know, the fact that I'm a geriatrician has got me more interest in clinical skills. I don't think that that is actually the fact, although there's no doubt, I think, that particularly as we're trying to get into an era now where we're responsible about the use of resources and technology, a case can be made that better exercise of clinical skills in frail or older people to help make judgments about what's best for them is important. I suppose the way I got into what you might call formal medical education, rather than just doing what I think we should all be doing, which is teaching students and trainees, was through exams. I didn't like the format of MRCP the way it was when I sat it. And I kind of thought that maybe I should try and get into the system and see if I can help change it. And, you know, so I was involved in the original inception of PACES and then subsequent revisions of it from the very old fashioned form of clinical exams that we had. And then the final bit, I guess I would say about my own career is how rewarding it has been to get involved outside the UK going to some, you might call them health economies or countries where there's less technology available. I'm always humbled by the fantastic clinical skills of doctors, particularly in physical exam. And then on the other hand, going to the States, particularly Stanford and Johns Hopkins, but other places I go, it's been really good to see that a big body of clinicians there in a very high tech environment are worried They're worried that there's too much tech and not enough emphasis on core clinical skills. And we've made a number of important advances in the States to just to try and redress that balance a little bit. Professor Elder, it's great hearing you speak about your career. And I think one of the things that's clear to me is that within education, at least, it's a community. It's a community of learners. We're all working towards the same thing to help our patients and to help train others to do the same. And it seems that obviously you're a leader in this. One of the things that I'm curious about is, obviously, we've talked about the difference between the US and the UK just recently with our episode on conversations and from what you've talked about. What do you think the differences are? And is there a correct or a right way of teaching clinical skills? Obviously, we have paces here and you've talked about paces. If you think about the US, if you want to contrast US and UK, let's just say postgraduate medical education in internal medicine. One thing, we've both got our strengths and we've both got our weaknesses. One great strength of every US residency program that I've visited is their sit-down-in-the-room, bleep-free, protected learning typically in the form of what they call morning report or noon conference. The typical model of morning reports led by the chief resident, who's a senior trainee, there's usually faculty, consultants sitting around the outside of the room, but it's a discussion between trainees about one case. And they go through the history, the exam, the labs, the imaging, the differential diagnosis, the consultants pitch in, 
if and when appropriate, or they may be asked about something particular. So it's case-based learning in a real team way that I haven't seen very often in the UK. I actually just wish we had more bleep-free protected time to make some kind of sit-down learning more possible. So that's one way that they are better than us, if that's the right language. And in having case-based discussions, the ones I go to, they'll occasionally bring in a patient and show how you know the history informs the differential or sometimes the physical exam. But they certainly highlight the importance of history and physical exam in a useful way. The downside of the American system, the main downside in comparison to us, I would say, relates to the old adage that assessment drives learning. And so if you go into internal medicine training in the USA, from your point of entry to when you certify, which is only three years, there is no summative exam. There's no high stakes exam in clinical skills. All your exams are knowledge-based, MCQ-based exams. The belief is that clinical skills and anything else you can't measure in a knowledge-based exam will be assessed in the workplace. But in reality, it's much more difficult to do that than the documents that suggest that you should do it make, make clear. So, and we've done some research on this Many residents in the USA, and indeed the same would apply to other countries, nobody really directly observes their history-taking skills, their physical exam skills. And because they know they don't have to pass an examination in it, they spend more time in the library learning answers to questions that are going to come up in their exam than honing their clinical skills. So the sheer existence of PACES drives a continuing interest in clinical skills, particularly physical exam that just doesn't exist in the USA. I wanted to ask you a bit more on that point. So that's very interesting chatting about those differences and similarities as well. In terms of the exams, so you're talking about the importance of these practical exams, assessing clinical skills, also assessing communication skills you know, the ethical scenarios that we get in PACES exams. You've been involved in PACES over time and you've taken part in, in changing PACES. And I just wanted to see a bit more about the history of that and how the evolution of PACES and where do we think that's going in the future? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. So I'll come on to PACES in a moment. I suppose the general point I would make, you know, if you subscribe to the view that assessment drives learning, which I do, I think there's a responsibility on those who design the assessments to ensure that the content drives learning appropriately. Now, that applies to the written exams as much as the clinical. MRCP UK try to take great care to ensure that the questions they put in cover important aspects of practice or knowledge relevant to clinical practice. But, you know, we don't always get it right. But the written exam should be driving your learning in a clinically relevant way, just as the clinical exam should. In terms of the way the clinical exam has changed, remember, it's not so long. The format of MRCP clinicals that I sat was the very traditional format, which was a long case. So you went away on your own, unobserved, for an hour with a patient, then you came back and you had a, I think it was 15 or 20 minute discussion with the examiners. Now you could arrive at your differential diagnosis or management plan by asking the patient what diagnosis they had. You could get to it by a variety of routes. Of course, I and nobody I know ever did that, but that was there. And everything you were doing was based on the end point rather than the process that you employed to get to the end point. 
And ultimately, the long case discussion became a form of a vibe-up. You know, it could go all over the place. It was very difficult to standardize and not the best way of doing it. The short cases, on the other hand, you could be taken one after the other, quick fire to see five, six, seven different patients. And they were sometimes called spot cases. Somebody might say, you know, look at these hands and tell us what you see. And you were observed and there would be some discussion of what you found. And I think it was helpful in discriminating between candidates. But to me, it treated the patient a bit like an object. They were objectified into just a physical sign. It wasn't set in the context of their whole condition. And then the third part of the traditional MRCP UK clinical was, of course, the viva itself, which meant you sat down in front of two examiners for half an hour. They could ask you whatever they wanted. And it went all over the place. You could literally be asked anything. So the content control was poor, and many things were asked that would actually be better asked in the writtens, like a differential diagnosis of a grey case or factual knowledge about physiology of respiration, say, you could be asked about. So it was good that the Viva went, and we moved in the clinical to a much more structured format, importantly, where everything that you do is observed. And there are as many marks in paces for the way you go about things as what you find. I think candidates who want feedback about the exams, the main thing, or about paces anyway, the main thing they want to know is what was the diagnosis in the cases that I saw. And whilst we understand that, you could actually get all the diagnoses and still fail the exam because the examiners weren't confident about your method, your technique, your discussion of differential diagnosis, et cetera, et cetera. So PACES isn't perfect. I don't think any clinical skills exam can ever be psychometrically perfect. It can't be as reliable as a written exam. But I think what we've got at the moment is a great improvement on what we had. As I've said already, I think just the existence of an exam like this is a fantastic tool, I guess, really, for us to try and sustain a good standard of history taking, communication and physical exam. The thing that strikes me, obviously, during COVID times is obviously the structure has changed again. And from a sort of educational theory perspective, ensuring that we're maintaining standards is really important. How have you found this process, Professor Elder? I think that the pandemic forced us, as you know, to do a whole lot of things that we thought about doing in a whole lot of areas of medicine, you know, like telemedicine, consulting with patients themselves has leapt forward because we were put in a position when it was really the only way we could sustain some services. So it's good that it, one, that made us do it, and two, that we had the tech and were able to pull it off. I think, though, that just as we are seeing limitations of clinical medicine, telemedicine, in that it's not a size or it's not a form of consultation that suits every patient, that suits every doctor or suits every presentation. We're also seeing an assessment that it doesn't suit everything that you may want to do or you may want to assess. I think it changes the interaction between the surrogate and the candidate too in ways that may not be applicable to real life. In other words, if you're in a consultation in a room, 
you might do things slightly differently. So I suppose what I'm thinking and saying is that if all our consultations were going to be virtual going on now, then of course, the assessment modality should be virtual only. But for as long as we're having real in-face person-to-person consultations, we should hold on to a part of the exam that sees the candidate in the context of the clinical encounter with the patient. Because there's a specific domain in paces, isn't there? And we put it in for a purpose with encouragement from our lay representatives, and that's maintaining patient welfare. And there's something about your whole demeanor around the patient, the way you speak to them, the way you help them to move around the bed, a whole lot of things that tells a doctor watching you what you are like in the context of an exam setting. In a nutshell, yeah, let's continue to use virtual means for some parts of our assessments, but I would like us still to have face-to-face as well. I remember doing my PACES exam very well. I remember the stress of it. I remember the day clearly. And I think one of the things that a lot of people think about PACES is the ritual of the exam, the methodical approach to approaching a patient coming to differential diagnosis whilst you're going through each part of the exam from the end of the bed, going through and assessing the patient's hands, moving up the arms, the neck, the chest, the precordium. This is, I think, one of the great things about clinical medicine is that, you, as you said, you're getting that face-to-face contact. Having said all that, is there any particular clinical exam that you like, that you enjoy doing? What a great question. I mean, I think that I should say I too was very nervous for the clinical exam. And I would agree with you that there is an element of ritual to it and also of rite of passage to it that different people will feel differently about. But in terms of an aspect of the physical exam, I had a long journey with the jugular venous pressure. And even more so with the character of the jugular venous pulse form. And, you know, the latter was quite heavily taught when I was a trainee. But in reality, it's rarely of use, the character of the jugular venous wave form. Yeah, a a CV wave or B wave of tricuspid regurgitation. That's the commonest thing, relatively easy to pick up. I suppose inspiratory rise in the JVP, it's not really a waveform thing, but that's something else that can be very important if you know about it and know to look for it. But I think just the whole business, going back to the jugular venous pressure of how you measure the JVP at the bedside has always intrigued me. I've taken a lot of interest in that. I think I've got quite good at it. We'll be talking about focus later, I suspect, and doing a bit of focus has helped inform that. But I do still genuinely feel in the kind of medicine I practice, so that's inpatient medicine with older people and sometimes some outpatients still, feeling confident about the assessment of the jugular venous pressure, I do find very, very useful to me clinically. So I guess that would be my sign of the year. Thank you for sharing that. That's very interesting. Something that probably all of us continue to learn and aspire one day to do well. We talked about clinical examinations, we talked about paces, but also factors that are influencing the way we're learning, but also teaching bedside medicine, such as use of technology, and also more recently, remote learning. I was just wondering, so you told us about this concept of assessment-driven learning, and also the importance of written examinations, MCQ questions. What are your tips for trainees, senior trainees, consultants? How do we continue to improve our clinical skills learning throughout careers? Well, I'd use PACES again as an example here. One of the barriers to really kick-starting teaching in physical exam and indeed other aspects of bedside medicine, so history taking and the giving of information, one of the barriers to that 
in the states is lack of, believe it or not, lack of confidence in the faculty, so in consultants, because many of them never sat a clinical skills exam themselves. Whilst many of them will be comfortable teaching undergraduates, medical students, you know, a top-to-toe, you know, basic method of exam, right? But they're quite uncomfortable about teaching postgraduates the interpretation of real physical signs. Now, I'm generalizing, obviously, some folk in the States are as expert as we are on that. But if you take the average confidence level, I would say it's lower in the UK. And one of the reasons for that is that we've got a community of people who are either PACE's examiners or because they know their own trainees have got to pass PACE's in their training journey, take an interest in encouraging and teaching in local hospitals, physical exam, history taking, and actually looking at what the trainee does before they pitch up for the exam. And I think there's a general point here about observing each other that we need to take great care over. If you think about the craft specialties, surgery, or even indeed learning a procedure in internal medicine, say learning cardiac catheterization, we all fully understand that the path to competence and then expertise comes from somebody watching you and giving you immediate feedback and you watching somebody else do it. I'm not sure how we translate that at the moment into core clinical skills, history taking, physical exam, etc. And the existence of an exam for us, we're far from perfect and there isn't enough direct observation, I don't think, but it gives us a reason to be looking at trainees and for trainees to be looking at their consultants and asking them what parts of the physical exam they find useful or listening to how they go about taking a history in a particular situation. And that's all part of the learning process, two-way learning process for trainers and trainees. I once listened to someone talk about how they approach the busy patient. I'm sure that's the kind of patient that you're well familiar with, Professor. The patient that comes in with intermittent triggered vertigo or an acute vestibular syndrome. And that always gave me that fear of dread about having to see that patient, perhaps in the PACER setting. And when I was trying to explain how to assess this patient to someone in the medical unit when I was teaching them, I, you know, I went back to basics. I went through the importance of the history, whether it's episodic or constant, and whether or not it's triggered or spontaneous, or whether it was something that was part of a broader neurological syndrome. I guess what I'm really talking about was the use of either the HINTS exam or in the episodic vertigo patient, the Dix Hall Pike. And I guess one of the things I reflect on with that is that I never saw a clinician do these tests throughout my entire training. I just wonder if you had any thoughts on that. And obviously it's become more widely appreciated over the last few years in medical teaching that I've attended. I think more people are doing this. What are your thoughts on that? Thanks, Johnny. More people are doing hints. And And in my experience, more people are aware of it and therefore feel empowered to do it. Right. Okay. So a couple of things I would say. First of all, in the exam setting itself, remember the two examiners who are examining you in paces at each of the different stations, they uh, standard set on the day around their own knowledge and expectation a general medical consultant level. Not So if there's a neurologist and you're asked about dizziness, It's not going to be pitched at the level of what a neurologist might think or do. And the two examiners have to agree through the process, you know, we call calibration, what they would expect a candidate to know and to do. And I suspect most consultants in the UK wouldn't feel comfortable with hints. I think hints is actually pretty difficult physical exam. 
you need to practice that a lot. I know some real, and I know they won't mind me using the word evangelists for hints in the States who are fantastic about it. They've produced an app showing you how to use it. But I find that difficult medicine, that's difficult clinical exam. As you probably also know, if you can do it, it's got very, very high diagnostic accuracy in the presentation of a dizzy patient. So it's worth mastering, but you really do have to work hard to master it. So I guess the main point in that is that let's take it something a bit simpler. If there's a patient in the cardiovascular station who's been put in the exam because they've got aortic regurgitation, if the examiners can't hear the diastolic murmur, you won't be marked down because you as a candidate can't hear the diastolic murmur. You know, it's based upon the examiners at a general medical level saying, look, what is it reasonable to be able to find here? In older formats of the exam, and indeed in some other clinical exams in other parts of the world, still the patient will be put in, a registrar, as we used to call it, a chief resident will have selected the patients, put them into the exam, and the examiners may not even examine them. You know, so PACES has the great advantage that the examiners have to examine the patient themselves and agree what the standard is. Does that get anywhere near what you were thinking about, Johnny? Yeah, I think it's just when you're preparing for PACES and we're doing a PACES podcast, which will be out in 2023, we will go through this process about what to expect. And I guess just for our candidates, it's good to get an idea about what do we expect and what will they have to do? And it's really helpful just to hear you voice these. these yeah, facts. well, I mean, I think that is a big issue. I was talking about that in another meeting today, and it's primarily the responsibility of MRCP UK, but it's also, I think, in deaneries and training too, we need to demystify these exams a wee bit or a big bit, probably even more for international medical graduates than we need to for UK graduates. But there's quite a mythology around the exams and what you need to do. For example, I saw somebody on Twitter again the other day saying, you know, tactile vocal fremitus is a complete waste of time. Why do they include it in paces? Now, of course, I couldn't agree more. Tactile vocal fremitus, I never, ever use. I wouldn't fail you if you, you know, and I can't fail you in the exam if you include it as part of your examination routine. And I wouldn't fault you if you don't do it. Once you get to postgraduate medicine, you know, in undergraduate medicine, I think it is the assessment of method and making sure people don't omit important steps in a physical exam that is the most important. But in postgraduate medical education and internal medicine, so that's PACES, I think the most important thing is not the method anymore, because we all develop slightly different styles of, for example, percussing. It's what you make from your own way of doing things. So if you don't roll the patient onto the left side and listen with the bell every time, but you pick up that somebody's got mitral stenosis, let's say, then that's your way of doing it. So there's a lot of kind of myths that in part come from some of the commercial courses, I think, that run. And the teachers on that are not PACES examiners. So they don't really know how the standard is set and what's expected. So we can take some responsibility for demystifying the exam. And I hope your forthcoming podcast does a bit of that too. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. So since we're on the topic of this approach to methodology in terms of how to perform clinical skills, but also how to interpret the science, we thought it would be quite useful and interesting to go through a case and really just get your approach to history, examination, but also interpretation of your findings and how do you do it in your clinical practice. If that's okay, we'll present the vignette and then we can discuss. 
So you're in your outpatient clinic and you are seeing a 71-year-old male patient referred with tremor in his left hand that's been progressing over the last six months. He's got a background of hypertension for which he's on lisinopril and family members also reported that they've noticed that he's been slowed down with some memory difficulties of recent so that's just a brief vignette and I thought it would be good to discuss your approach, kind of a brief history and what aspects of history would be interested in, but also examination. How would you focus your examination? Okay, oh, well, thanks, Andrea. And I think actually listening to it, it's a great example for me because I use tremor actually as an example to make a point when I give talks in the States. And the point is this. In some of the residency programs I go to have the brightest of the bright as medical residents. And if I, and I have done this, if I say to them in noon conference, or if I gave them that vignette and I said, what's your differential diagnosis of tremor here? They would bang, 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 bang. They'd give me 15 causes, you know, right down to, I don't know, heavy metal poisoning or something like that. They would have no problem with the factual elements of it. But... If I were to take them to the bedside and say, here's this patient with this tremor, what's the differential diagnosis? They'll have much more difficulty with that. Now, again, that's a generalization, but it applies. On average, the ability to apply knowledge that you've got about clinical signs is not as good in some countries outside the UK as we see here. So with this person, 71, and I've said 71 very deliberately there, whatever the presentation is, you know, set it in the context of the individual who's coming to see you. So if they were 41, your differential diagnosis would immediately be a little different. If they were a female, your differential diagnosis might be slightly different. So set the presentation, in this case, tremor, in the context of the unique individual, the person that you are seeing. And that might right away set you on the most productive diagnostic pathway. I think the other things that I would stress, I mean, I can go into as much detail as you want. I would stress here that the functional impact of that tremor, I think it would be very, very important to know. And I would expect in the exam setting that a trainee found out how much of a bother this tremor was, because that will impact upon how much we do to try and improve it for the patient. So functional impact or functional effect of the symptom is very important. There are obviously specifics here, you know, all the usual stuff. How long has it been with you? The speed of onset, if it wasn't there one day and it came on the next, quite clearly, abruptly did, then that takes you into, you know, maybe a vascular etiology for it. You know, you'll be familiar with the old adage that in urology, the history helps you determine what the pathology is that's causing the presentation, and the physical exam helps you cite the lesion. So there's an example of that. If it was very abrupt, that might take you down one line. Another way I like to think about these things is, and in speaking to trainees, is you have to do this. You're going to see the patient yourself. You're going to go in the room next door to tell your consultant about it, or maybe you'll phone them, you know, if it's an emergency situation. What questions will the consultant ask me? You know, will they want to know? Because they're not seeing the patient themselves in their own mind's eye to help them work out what's going on here. So I always encourage people to think that way too. So as well as things about the timing of the onset, how long it's been there, that you would have to ask what drugs other than lisinopril are they taking? It would be good to know what occupation that they had. I always include that. 
And there are other very specific things like, do they drink alcohol? Have they noticed any effect of alcohol upon it? Because if it's an essential tremor, which would be the commonest, then because of tremor alone, then alcohol may help it. I would ask them about their gait, their continence, whether they've had any falls, has their speech changed, has their writing changed? So stuff that gets you into extra pyramidal disease. And I wouldn't ignore, maybe because I'm a geriatrician, that your last bit that you said about slowing down and memory difficulties. That, you know, if that's mentioned, that's an emergency, I would say. That needs objectified with some form of cognitive testing and a more detailed story from the patient and their family. So that there's some of my thoughts about what I would ask about. So I guess we're kind of alluding to a specific syndrome, which we'll come on to. We've not really talked about this patient's hobbies. We could say he enjoys playing the piano. That's quite relevant in that regards. In terms of the tremor, we've not really talked about the tremor itself. You've mentioned one type of tremor, a central tremor. How do you, in your questions, differentiate the type of tremor? And I guess I'm talking about movement and actions. I mean, I think, you know, what happens if you try and drink a cup of tea is a helpful thing to ask. And lots of these things become not absolute rules, but, you know, they have a predictive value. In essential tremor, it is more likely that a patient will have difficulty with that, with an action or sustaining a posture than a patient with extrapyramidal disease, typically due to Parkinson's disease, will have. So I might ask something like that. But I guess generally, Johnny, it would be about the overall functional effect of the tremor in relation to things, to activities of daily living. Does it impact on your hobbies? Does it impact on dressing, feeding, doing up buttons, those kinds of questions? But as you know, you'll get more bang for your buck, as it were, by looking at the tremor yourself and asking questions about it. That's really helpful. I don't know if you wanted to ask a bit about the exam itself. Yeah, that would be great. So we talked about the history taken and the points that you'd take from the history. What about the examination? Presume you'll do a kind of full system examination, neurological exam, but we concentrate on the tremor. How would you approach this in terms of the clinical skills exam? Yeah, well, thanks. I'd, I'd actually emphasise what you just said there, that, you know, an exam shouldn't force you to do this, but try and avoid trying to make a diagnosis on the basis of a single site, right? And the analogy I give you, again, would be cardiovascular system. If you're asked to plonk your stethoscope on a chest and listen to a systolic murmur, and there's a systolic murmur there, and somebody asks you, what's the cause of that? You should refuse to answer because there are other physical signs that you would want to take into account that might help inform your differential diagnosis, not just how the murmur sounds in one place. And it's the same with tremor. The associated signs, particularly of extrapyramidal disease here, that's going to be a big thing that sways your diagnosis. There are differences in the frequency and the amplitude of the tremor, say the textbooks, and I think it is true in clinical practice between essential tremor and extrapyramidal tremor. Extrapyramidal is more frequently unilateral onset. So there are differences in the tremor itself. But I think one of the most helpful things here is that if you examine the patient and you find that as well as this tremor, and you're not sure which type of tremor this is, but as well as that, they've got increased tone, they've got bradykinesia, and I actually use finger nose a la cerebellar testing to look at bradykinesia. Just touch my finger, touch your nose and see how quickly they can do that. Other people use fine finger movements, you know, piano playing. If they have low voice volume, then those kinds of signs 
are going to push me towards extrapyramidal disease and away from essential trauma. And obviously also in the neuro exam, if you found that they had clear upper motor neuron signs in their lower limbs, that would shift your differential diagnosis a wee bit. It could be vascular Parkinsonism, or it could be one of the more sinister variants of extrapyramidal disease itself, not you know, Parkinson's plus. It wouldn't just be the tremor that helps me. Would you expect candidates to pick up on things like hypomimia? I guess I'll ask you to just explain what that is for the listeners and things like the glabellar tap. Are these things that we expect from candidates anymore? If there was a patient with a tremor in paces, the two examiners would discuss beforehand what physical signs they think are present. They would discuss what signs are not present in their opinion. And if you find most of the signs that are there, and don't invent a whole lot that aren't there, then you're likely to pass the physical signs domain of the exam. You know, the examiners, they won't fault you specifically if you don't get into something like glabellar tap. They might ask you what you think the significance of that is, or, you know, paucity of facial expression is. And the answer is that on their own, They've got limited diagnostic value, but taken in the context of an array of other physical signs, they could be, you know, a couple of the things that sway you one way or another. It's like interpreting images, and we forget about this. There is subjectivity. Some people criticize the physical exam because it's not 100% reproducible or reliable, but neither is looking at a chest x-ray. And you need to get confident, I think, about making your own judgment in your own technique and your own experience of what you see and how that informs diagnosis. That's what it's all about. And how, so you alluded earlier about the importance of putting all the information you've gathered during examination history in context to discuss your differentials and present that to the examiners. So we've just stayed in the context of the examination cases. Clinical examination presentation is an important part of it and discussion with the examiners. What's your approach and advice to trainees in terms of how to conduct that? I've been involved in teaching undergraduate students and also preparing them for their OSCE exams. And I sometimes find challenging because students are really interested about that aspect about your absence of clinical findings and how much we need to concentrate on that. What's your approach of taking all that in context? Well, in the paces teaching that I have done, really all the examiners know it's a high stress situation. It's not like being on a ward round. It should be, but the high stakes nature of it means that it can never actually be like that. And it's not exactly like discussing it with your consultant in a clinic, discussing the patient. But that's the way you should try and see it. And the examiners do take nerves into account. The discussion will be pitched, you know, at the level of what you might discuss in a ward round if you've just seen a patient with that physical finding or in station five, this particular presentation. There isn't enough time for the examiners to get into much more detail. And if you happen, you know, say, imagine you see, a, I don't know, a patient who's got an enlarged liver. If somebody asks you about the genetics of hemochromatosis, then almost certainly that's because they've run out of the things they needed to ask you for you to pass all the domains in the case you know so it's not good that's never going to be a pass fail issue so think about what would I say if I was on a war journal or in a clinic and we were trying to discuss this case about the significance of a finding or what it means if something I might expect to find isn't there I mean another thing you make me think and are really about the difference between undergraduate and postgraduate assessment of physical exam 
I think that undergraduate level, so when we're doing finals, students will often want to tell you everything. They'll go through every bit of the exam that they've done. You know, the GBP was elevated, heart rate was blah, blood pressure was blah, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's fine. You know, that, as I said earlier, I think method there and routine is an important part of what the assessment should be driving you to learn. And most finals exams are pitched at that kind of level. Postgraduate, you really ideally, you're getting to a point when you're saying, well, I don't need to cover, I don't need to tell the examiner everything. And examiners will often prompt people by saying this. What are the positive findings and the important negative? Yeah, like, so I've got this patient who's got ascites clinically, I think. But hey, they've not got peripheral edema and they've not got an elevated GB. You know, that shows to me that they have appreciated the significance of the absence of those two signs in the differential diagnosis without necessarily asking them anything else at all. So it's about contextualizing at postgraduate level what you've found. As I've said, the difficult you know, setting of a clinical exam, but that's ideally the way you'd go about it. To go hand in hand with that, if we're out with the examination setting, so in clinic, back to our patients, do you use the clinical examination findings in your communication with patients and how much do you explain the diagnosis or go through follow-on tests? Sorry, Andrew, so you mean what do so, I so do, tell patients? So you, do you do discuss? Do you, yeah, exactly. Do you, do oh, well. you discuss that? Yeah, I think in the earlier part of my career, I maybe didn't. And then I realized that the physical evidence of a disease on a patient's skin or body is part of their understanding often of their disease, or sometimes of the mystery or the worry or concern about disease. I come to feel that we sometimes don't recognize that enough. So if a patient's got finger clubbing, and I notice it on a warder, and I will say to them something like, doctors look at strange things. I'm looking at your fingers because X, Y, and Z, and it might suggest you need to do X, Y, and Z tests. And I think that if you look at it that way, and the same actually applies to POCUS now, physical exam findings and the significance of questions that we ask and bedside ultrasound findings are all great ways of getting into a conversation with a patient about their illness and their body and what they understand about their illness. So you've touched on POCUS or point of care ultrasound, Professor Elder. I guess it's probably a good point to, to sort of ask you about where you see that in the future of clinical examination. Is there a role for this in PACES? In paces, well, maybe come back to that. So the first thing I'd say, you know, I practice a bit of POCUS, not a lot these days, more when I'm in the States from here, but I was in the past trained in echocardiography. So I appreciate its strengths and its limitations. The general point I would make is that people are sometimes surprised when the groups I'm involved with, so that's Bedside Medicine Society in the States and Stanford 25 in Stanford itself, they're a bit surprised that a group that's predominantly interested in what we call bedside medicine, so core clinical skills, are embracing POCUS at all. Because, And I think that's because people see it as a competition. You know, it's either technology and imaging, be it bedside or otherwise, or it's physical exam and history taking. That's the wrong way to look at it. You know, disease remains a formidable foe, and we need all the tools at our disposal. So, Technology and our basic clinical skills are complementary. They're not in competition. And that's the way we should be looking at it. And that's the message we give in the teaching we do in the States. 
Bedside ultrasound is important as well because we feel, and a couple of other reasons, you know, it takes you to the patient. It takes the clinician who's responsible for the care of the patient to the patient. And the more like physical exam does, the more justifications we've got for that, the better. You know, it's a totally different thing for the patient to be sent away to echo or x-ray or whatever and have, you know, what are a group of strangers do the test in them to having somebody that is looking after them doing the test. So I think it's strong from that point of view. I also think it's useful, Johnny, to get into focus because it does help you realise the subjectivity of imaging. I think some people think they can pick up a focus probe and generate an image that A, they'll be able to be interpret and B, that will have little labels saying left atrium, right atrium, left ventricle on it. It's, you know, anybody who's tried it, be it on the heart or any other application, know that there's a lot of learning there to be taken. But it helps us, I think, appreciate that we've got to make a judgment about information rather than just maybe doing what we're doing too much of now, which is getting a report back from echo or CT or MRI and not now looking at the image yourself, reading the report and taking that as absolute gospel. And all our colleagues in imaging who generate these images would say, look, be careful and don't do that. One, because it's subjective and B, because the quality of the report from any image that you request is in part determined by the quality of the information on the request. We as the clinicians caring for the patient, we know the full context in which we're requesting an investigation. And our colleagues in radiology and echocardiography in particular, they don't know that. And so that's another reason that POCUS is powerful. Can I say one other thing about it? I mean, I think that the BAR is a parallel physical exam, that we've spoken a bit about the need for direct observation on the route to the acquisition of competence. And that applies to physical exam. But my goodness, it applies to focus as well. You know, if you're going to get good at it, you need to have people looking at you doing it, looking at the images that you produce, talking about your interpretation of it. And that's just as difficult to set up in the hectic environment of clinical care as it is to have good clinical teaching programs. So that's a worry for me is about how we generate the environment to deliver that. And also in the UK in particular, enough trainers who've got the skills to train others in POCUS, but we're totally behind it. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on point of care ultrasound and for introducing it. Johnny, you've been involved in training and setting up courses locally at Regionary for Focus. And I wanted to also ask you a few questions about it. We do have an upcoming episode on Focus. We have a discussion with Dr. Clare on Focus as an extension of clinical skills, as you mentioned, Professor Elder. Johnny, from your experience, practical application, which are the most common scenarios where you've used Focus in clinical medicine? I think the case of Professor Elder talked about someone who's come in with suspected ascites, but no certainty about it. I think the ability to pick up a probe with appropriate training and assess whether there's ascites or free fluid within the abdomen, and then being able to interpret that and explain to the patient, this is why you've got abdominal distension, and then start their diagnostic or investigative pathway. That's one of the great things about POCUS. I'm, I'm lucky enough to be trained in it through acute medicine training, the FAMAS training, and it's not part of the curriculum for acute medics. It's required for all acute medics to be able to scan thoracic, abdominal, lower limb and vascular in order to CCT. So this is a skill that the appropriate bodies feel that is required for a generation of doctors, and probably this might extend to other specialties in the future. 
So I think that's one of the great things, be able to see someone and work out, are they actually in urinary retention or is this someone that's actually got a pelvic or ovarian cyst in that patient that has a large volume on their bladder scan, but when you catheterize them, have low volume urine output. I'm sure Amanda, I've talked about echo in your cardiology training, and we've talked about the use of that with Professor Elder. So its utility is great. Its use, I think, could be on a daily basis in the ward round. And it's great to hear that there are opportunities for training and also this becoming part of the higher specialty training curriculum. Again, just to summarise for our listeners, Johnny, what would you advise from your experience in terms of your, how you would your approach to getting trained and focus and what opportunities do we have available? So I think as, as Prof says, it's going through an appropriate training programme. And we're lucky in the UK to have lots of different societies that have their own programme. But within the medical specialty sphere, it's the focused acute medical ultrasound course, which is run by the Society of Acute Medicine. The cardiologists obviously have their own British Society of Echocardiography. The Intensive Care Society have their own course. And I think it's changed names a few times, but it's called FUSIC now, I think. And if you're really enthusiastic, then you can actually do a radiology qualification. The British Thoracic Society have their own competency for thoracic ultrasound, and there are different levels of that. But by and large, within medicine, I think, being able to say whether someone has a large pleural effusion, or is it actually consolidation with no effusion at all? That's a real gift in the clinical exam. But clinical exam isn't always hard and fast. And I guess that's why we've talked about paces prior to this. I don't know if you've had much experience with that, Professor Elder. Yeah, sorry, I was just thinking I didn't answer the last bit. Your previous question was about it appearing in paces at some point. I don't know. I think if it became a mainstream part of the internal medicine curriculum, then there would have to be a clear reason not to include it because it's accessible in that kind of environment, I would say. The other thing you were making me think was that the last I was in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins a couple of months ago and I went, I was doing teaching war down there. And one of the guys there who's a fellow of our college, Brian Garibaldi, he's pulmonologist in Hopkins. We went and saw a patient with a pneumothorax who had a chest strain in and there were medical students with us. And it was fantastic the way that he integrated the basic findings on ultrasound. So how you appraise whether the pleura are opposed visceral and parietal pleura are opposed in the normal lung and then in the not quite yet inflated lung where the drain was on the left. But he was also able to prove to the students that they could pick up the fact that, in this case, the left lung was not fully inflated by listening. Yeah, they could hear that there was a difference. So on the one hand, it opened the door to them of that kind of bedside imaging and the judgments they would have to make it around. But also, hey, look, it is possible to have an idea here from a relatively subtle clinical sign still of what is going on. So as I was saying earlier there, the two of them are complementary and teaching them both the bedside helps people understand the relative value and power of each. I think what's clear is that we'll never have to abandon the stethoscope. We will always need the stethoscope. Well, there's a few very eminent cardiologists around the world who write editorials saying that that is not the case, Johnny, and I've replied to a few of them. You know, rumours of my death are premature and all that. No, I think we're lucky 
We are practicing in parts of the world where it is possible to contemplate healthcare systems where doctors can be trained in and acquire bedside ultrasound, but many parts of the world are not. One of the reasons I dislike the message about the death of the stethoscope is it undermines the confidence, I think, of many doctors around the world for whom that is a primary tool and will remain a tool for their whole professional career. So we shouldn't undermine that confidence Let's use focus when we can get it, but remember we're not all in the same situations. Exactly. I've got a very recent example, actually. Yesterday, I was examining a patient on the ward and we're discussing aortic stenosis. And this patient came in with signs of critical aortic stenosis. Echocardiogram was done and he has low gradient aortic stenosis as per measurement, which can be quite a challenging clinical scenario in terms of assessing the severity of aortic stenosis. And it was actually the stethoscope and the clinical skills and the signs on examination, such as the late picking of the systolic murmur and the character of the carotid pulse that helped determine the severity of these disease. And in addition to, you know, other methodologies that we have nowadays, like CT calcium scoring and things like that. But I think, as you said, the importance of those clinical examination skills yeah. will hopefully remain yeah. there all the time. Yeah. So that's a good example, Anda. And one point I would like to make as we get near the end is that in my mind, like many things, it's not a competition between bedside skills and technology. They are complementary. The biggest mileage that we are getting really is by pointing out that if you don't do the physical exam, you will make mistakes. I think that people have an idea at the moment that, you know, if I don't do the MRI in a patient with back pain, I'm really likely to get into difficulty, maybe even be sued here. In fact, if you look at claims in the state, here is the likely situation of litigation if you haven't done the physical exam in a patient with back pain and documented is if you haven't done the imaging. So we've got to remember that it's a matter of balance. Some elements of the physical exam are already, I would argue, redundant and not helpful in real life clinical practice. But if you get to a point that you say there's no value in it at all, you know, hey, I don't look at my patients anymore, then you're in a very, very dangerous situation, I would say. We've covered so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to listen to you, Professor Elder. Listening back to you, I think we've touched on a lot. We've touched about the history of cases. We've talked about the history of clinical education in itself and how we apply this in modern practice. We're touching on focus or point of care ultrasound. For you, what would your sort of take-home messages be for the listeners before we wrap this up? Largely, I guess, Johnny, what I've just said about a balance. It's important to adopt and consider the adoption of new technologies, but don't always discount the old or the traditional. I don't set any store myself on tactile vocal fremitus, nor the character of the JVP, nor some of the physical signs that still seem to be taught in some places. But on the other hand, I worry about too rapid a move away from physical exam. So it's about balance. It's about the management of patient safety. And there is no doubt from the literature that if you neglect the physical exam, you will make errors in the care of patients that cost money, cost suffering, can sometimes cost lives. So don't disregard it. I guess the final thing I might say would be that, you know, I was head of exams, as you know, and that doesn't make you Mr. Popular. 
sometimes. So I do understand the, the overall perspective about postgraduate exams, but I do still feel, and I guess somebody like me would be bound to feel this, I suppose. I do think there is some pride for us in the fact that we've got a clinical skills exam at postgraduate level still. So many trainees that I speak to, once they get paces out of the way themselves, they say, look, okay, I do actually see some value in that and wonder what it would look like, what our assessment system would look like if we didn't have it. But as I've said already there, I'm coming from a position of bias in my experience, I guess. So think about the clinical exam. I did, and I got into a position where I was able to change it. If you're listening and you don't like PACES and you want to make a case for changing it, then get involved and see what your new ideas can bring to the exam as it moves forward. Thank you very much for your time, Professor Elder, and also for sharing your experience and knowledge and thoughts on examination and clinical skills. Many thanks to Johnny as well for co-hosting this episode, and thank you to you all for listening to Clinical Conversation. And today we did a little introduction to our upcoming episode on point-of-care ultrasound, so stay tuned. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Professor Elder. Thank you.